So there was my alcoholic mind the minute I'm thinking about maybe, maybe, maybe doing AA. And it says, no, Rob, I want you dead. Don't do that. I've got another plan over here. We're just going to stay right here, and you're going to drink yourself to death. Welcome to the Recovery Edgecast. I'm Alfredo, and I'm an alcoholic. And today we have Rob T. with us. Rob, how you doing? Good. Thanks for joining us. How about you give us your sober date and home group? Okay. Uh, not really a joiner, so <laughs> uh, I don't actually have a home group per se. The Friday night at Rin Church, I guess, would be the closest thing. Yeah, New Hope. Uh, my recovery date is 3302. Three, three, and oh, two. So, how many years is yeah. that? That is 18. Man. Don't give me too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on 18 years. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, how you doing these days? What are you up to um, in this 2020 that uh, we're all struggling well, with? Yeah, weirdest year ever, huh? Um, Good luck to all of us in 21. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been a carpet installer for a number of years. And my fortune in this year has been, I was doing a little, for extra money, some DoorDash, which is now, for me, I mean, it's really good money. Um, and so I'm one of those people that's also lucky in the fact that I didn't get stuck in the house all these months, like a lot of people I know. I've got a good friend that also is from Phoenix, that's where I started out, who is, uh, a transplant to Colorado, and he's just the opposite. He spends all his time inside, and we just had lunch yesterday uh so i'm uh i'm doing that do a little carpet on the side now and uh enjoying a meeting when i whenever i can with a mask (laughs) (laughs) well i think you're a little warmed up now how uh, about you tell us what it was like before what happened and what it's like today and you can start as early as you'd like in your life. Okay. Well, my name is Rob. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, got to say that. Remind myself, remind everybody else. I uh, grew up in an alcoholic family. Didn't know it for years. Dad's an alcoholic, salesman, three-piece suit, drove Cadillac. Uh, mother is still just insane. And uh, just a definitive Al-Anon, if you will. Uh, always cleaning up the mess and phoning it in. And clearly, from the outside, sicker than the alcoholic. Um, and she had five kids with that guy. Okay, I'm one of five. Four of us are in the disease. And uh, my older sister is not. Uh, here's a little joke I like to start out with. Uh, I heard this from an old timer years ago. If I could drink the way that normal people drink, I would be drinking that way constantly. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> and that like is it. something you and you and I would get. Yeah. So yeah. I, I would be drinking that way constantly. Normal people look at you kind of funny when you tell that joke. I've done it a few times and it just <laughs> doesn't go over. Uh, they don't get the punchline. Right. So, uh, I don't know how to drink normally. There is, there's a reason that I drink. And, um, so I, I'm from Phoenix. I grew up out there, as I said a minute ago. Um, and to say that I'm an alcoholic and an addict is a lot like saying I'm from Phoenix and I'm from Arizona. And I feel like I've always been lucky with that idea that I'm not trying to differentiate or separate one or the other. 
to me, it's what, whatever you put in front of me that I can abuse or use, uh, whatever I can get to affect me from the neck up. Um, they're all, it's one and the same. Right. You take away my favorite. Let's, let's see what else you got. What else is on the coffee table? Yeah. So grew up in Chicago, Irish Catholic. Uh, you know, and I heard this a lot when I was still really, really new. You know, was it nature? Was it nurture? I believe I have the gene, if you will. I was going to be an alcoholic no matter what. Uh, environment, sure. Yeah. Take away the gene, and I had a lot to drink over. Abusive family, verbally, physically. Uh, did that make me an alcoholic? Well, it sure is ammunition to drink about. Uh, so was I toilet trained backwards or was it just from you know, the point of conception that I was destined to be one? Here's the fact about all of that. I'm still an alcoholic no matter what. If you could take it back to its root, it still doesn't change a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I, I got over fairly early. doesn't matter. Um, my first real drunk was quite an experience. I was 14 and, uh, let's see, I was, this may all sound like fiction. It's not, uh, I was picked up while hitchhiking to some friends. Uh, I was on my way to some friend's house, uh, by a bunch of people that were in an RV who had temporarily kidnapped me. Wow. And this is my first drunk. I'm drinking beer and wine, which is a no-no anytime. Uh, and schnapps. Was beat up pretty severely at some point in the evening and ran away from this group. Wherever we stopped at, we were at someone's house at some point, and it all turns into a big blur. Uh, so I'm somewhere, don't even know where in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago, hitchhiking again, get picked up by these other people, end up at a very large party. And I'm standing at a sink facing away from it in a kitchen. There's a live band in this house and I end up throwing up all over the floor. (laughs) Shocker. And get dragged out of the house into the front lawn the people that brought me to the party end up taking me to the police station where I'm temporarily arrested and picked up by my mother and the following morning all I could remember really was you know I'm, I'm all bruised up on one side from having the shit kicked out of me and I got a black eye and I'm Suddenly, I, I remember brushing my teeth and threw up again because it tasted like schnapps. So uh, that was my first drunk, and it wasn't like, oh, my God, I'll never do that again. That was horrible. I remember it, it felt like, well, I just got to do it right. You know those uh, videos in health class you'd see? Uh, we'd had a week or two on drugs and alcohol. Uh, and, you know, the hippie generation and people partying and stuff. It all looked so fun me i just couldn't wait to get out and try some of that you know i might even get laid mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> so that that allure of you know the, the people being so grown up and you know just uh, getting away with it aspect was part of the whole uh fun part of you know getting you know getting away with a few drinks smoking yeah. pot for the first time and all of that. So, um, so do you remember on that first day how you felt when you were offered that drink? Because before that you didn't really have a problem and you were probably somewhat normal. I'd imagine. Uh, no, I wouldn't say normal. I, what I was getting to or just about to get to is I was afraid of everything all of my life. Never really had it as a, you know, in the front of my mind, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, but, I ran around in fear of everyone and everything all my life. And I can't say that there was a certain feeling I got, but when someone passed me my first beer that night, 
I accepted it immediately. It wasn't like, oops, maybe I shouldn't do this, or what if, and I suppose it's not a good idea. It just felt right. Um, later, subsequently, as I experimented more and more, what I found was it was easier to join a party and talk to girls and feel a part of. And I never really did prior to that. I felt separate, lonely, angry, afraid, and not smart enough, cool enough, tough enough, whatever enough happened to be in whatever room I were standing in. When in fact, I probably fit in just as well as anybody. I just had the mind of an alcoholic or whatever else you want to put in front of it. Uh, that wouldn't allow me to fit in. And alcohol and drugs helped. Um, out on the smoking lot, lowest common denominator. You know, I didn't need to be a jock. I didn't need to join a club. I didn't need to be any of those other things. I would just join in on, you know, let's, let's go smoke. Let's, let's have a few beers. Let's pass around a bottle of wine. There's no uh, <clears throat> qualification for that. You just fit in a lot easier. Um, so it became a, a go-to. And the problem with that equation is trying to get to that point where I don't feel afraid and get past it where I am just sloppy, dumb, and drunk and unable to even stand on my own two feet. That was always the tough part. Going from I don't care how anybody feels to really I'm barely conscious. So um, I also had ongoing mental health issues that I didn't realize uh, to get to this part. I mention it because you know, it's easy to go, okay, I had these issues over here. My anger problem when I was a child was present. Uh, I would get into fights real easily. I wasn't some badass, never was, never will be. But I was, if you pushed me around or said enough to me, I would just turn around and smack you one, wherever we were, in school or otherwise. And so... And believe me, if I had to wait till the end of the day to do that, I'm calm now. I'm not, you know, all charged up like I was the moment it happened. And now I'm a, I'm a pussy. I'm not, I don't want to fight you. But in the moment, yeah, I was, I was an angry kid. I'd uh, steal anything that wasn't nailed down, drunk or not. And um, had all sorts of issues with, yeah, my, I was impulsive. And, uh, so my parents had me institutionalized and this is back in the seventies, back when insurance worked. Um, I was at a couple of different locked up for about four months. Then I was in another long-term facility down in Austin, Texas, and then back at another locked facility in Chicago for a few more months, more or less from the time I was, uh, turning 15 to 18. And it addressed a lot of issues. And what I would say is, when I got out of there, my mental health, my mental health was great. When I got out of treatment, by the time I was turning an adult, uh, I was able to express myself and my uh, impulsivity, the anger, all that stuff had really been talked out, worked out. And uh, I was a different person. And my disease was waiting, just waiting. Alcoholism, drug addiction, any of that wasn't really addressed. And I was just really just getting my feet wet as a kid. I would drink whenever I could, drug whenever I could, but it wasn't constant. I wasn't an adult yet. I was, it wasn't allowed. So now, I'm, now I am an adult. I'm living on my own with a couple of roommates. And that's where it took off. And from there, I got a little at a time more drunk every day. And really, that was always the focus. Whatever else I may be doing, if I'm smoking pot, I'm drinking beer. 
if I'm doing a little speed, a little Coke, whatever it may be, I'm also drinking with it. It's always, always on the table. Um, you know, I used to like to believe that I liked the taste of beer and wine. Never really was a big fan of hard liquor. Would have to mix it up 50-50 with something else to get it down. Whiskey or whatever else. And uh, I like beer. Steinlager, Grolsch, St. Pauli Girl, to name a few. Not to endorse any of them. <laughs> However, I also like the taste of Coke. You know, Coca-Cola. However, I don't think I've ever drank a six-pack of Coke even in one day, much less a case of it. So the flavor of it was just kind of a, a lie I told myself. The taste wasn't really the value of what I was doing. And so my drinking progressed into my mid-20s. And I would say that if you asked me then... If I had a drinking drug problem, I would say absolutely not. I'm surrounded by people that do just the same as me. I can make it to work, pay the bills, so on and so forth. Yeah, I have problems every now and then. Get drunk, fall down, get up in the morning, I'm a little hungover. But I carry on. And progressively, as time went by, more and more consequences resulted as it does for all of us uh you know the comparative that i found myself doing in the beginning when i started doing meetings just doesn't work in essence what what i called my bottom with my circumstances my conflict with uh drugs and alcohol what it did the results in my life are my story I've met people that were so much worse. We all have. And people that, it's like, is that your story? That's all you did? I'd still be drinking if I were you. Uh, so it, it's to each his own. Each of us has our own limit. And mine was, I would say, fairly middle of the road. I never really achieved much. Didn't go to college. Didn't join the military. Did my, you know, drinking uh, just uh, around the people I would meet. And it's real easy to make new friends, those kind of friends. Uh, pretend friends, alcoholic friends, everywhere I went. So uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this. As time went by later in my drinking, I, I'm starting to find out. I don't care if I'm drinking around other people or not. I don't need uh, it as a social lubricant any longer. It's just necessary every day. And my budget is built around it. And I've, I've lost jobs. I've lost girlfriends. I've lost apartments over this. And I'd say that one thing I was lucky with from that point was I wasn't the type of alcoholic that ignored these facts. And my father was a drunk, as I said, and sober by now. He had been sober for a number of years. And in my late 20s, early, early mid, late 20s, I attended, I don't know, maybe a half a dozen meetings. I'd also been to Alateen when I was a kid before I was institutionalized. So I had some familiarity of the program. And... You know, I'd heard enough to know that, yeah, this is, this is getting in your way. And this is the cause. The reason you broke a bone. The reason you ended up in a squad car, at least temporarily. Or the reason that she left. Or you lost another job. And I was saying this in a meeting not too long ago. It's like a dog chasing its tail. I'm drinking over the loss of her when it's the drinking, that's the reason that I lost her. And the drinking that I'm doing today over that is going to cause for more pain and negative results here in the near future. And uh, another fact is, I would say that every time any of those situations, any of those things happened, I was drunk. But it wasn't like every time I went out and got drunk, 
something bad would happen. It was just every time that something did happen, I was, I was, uh, under the influence and I was able to see it. And even though I was aware of it, awareness doesn't mean a lot until you're ready to do something with it. So I don't give myself much credit there. I just knew this is all because of my drinking. This is, this is resulting because of the bad choice I make. And I guess that's where I was deluded was I really thought I was making a choice. Did anybody um, approach you about the problem? Sure. Yeah. I mean, even close friends that would, you know, this was starting to become a common theme. People around me that could snap a few bongs, drink a few beers. It's like, Rob, you're a nice guy. <laughs> but you need to slow down or, you know, my dealer even telling me one night, man, you need to put on some weight. You, uh, <laughs> you don't look good. And these are people that are able to do the same as me, but they're not doing as much as me perhaps. Um, you know, to fast forward here, my last, uh, summer. Now I, I am homeless. I'm unemployable. The car I own doesn't start or run. It's sitting in my ex-girlfriend's driveway. This aging debutante, topless dancer. And I've got a 10-speed bike, a bag of clothes, and I'm living in a park. Okay? I would say it's a really nice park because I'm the only one, the, the only bum living there. And it's up in North Scottsdale. Yeah. So, and I'm deluded to the point where it's like, I'm not that bad. I'm not a real, real, real bum. I'm not living down on the river bottom or on Van Buren. And I don't look like a bum. You know, image management, when you're on the street, that's important. Uh, not looking the part. It gets you in places. And uh, so I'm existing day after day washing windows. My little brother and I had had a window cleaning business for years that I'm now living off of rather than extra money. Um, and you know, I'll never forget one evening I was sitting there in the park and by now I'm a hope to die drunk. Every time I drink, I just want to find the courage, the nuts to just go step in front of a bus or figure some other way out. It, this isn't fun anymore. The party's been over, it's been over for a couple of years. And I'm sitting there one evening reading a New Times magazine, free paper. And there's like this 12, 15 page story about alcoholism. And AA is in the story and quotes and professionals and all this stuff. And Alfredo, I'm sitting there in the park thinking, AA. Now, I just told you a few minutes ago, I know about Alcoholics Anonymous, enough to know that, you know, and I'm thinking, hey, hey, well, that doesn't sound like very much fun. Like I was having the time of my life right now, living the way I was, like a pig in the park. No future, no idea when I'm going to join the human race again. If you know, I'm going to be indoors this winter, it's hot. Phoenix is a really hot place to spend the summer outside. And so there was my alcoholic mind the minute I'm thinking about maybe, maybe, maybe doing AA. And it says, no, Rob, I want you dead. Don't do that. I've got another plan over here. We're just going to stay right here, and you're going to drink yourself to death. I want you miserable. I'll settle for prison or an institution, but I really want you dead. So fuck AA. And I didn't recognize that until I was, you know, sometime later in recovery, remembering that little piece of, you know, my life. Um, so I end up in my first meeting, a place called the Valley Alano club at the time. It was over at 64th street and Thomas, uh, right next door to a lumber yard. I'd seen it before, you know, seeing the little, circle and triangle symbol <laughs> and I uh, walked into my first meeting and walked right back out 
it was a large meeting. There were a lot of people. I suddenly felt very embarrassed. It seemed like too many people were looking at me. About 24 hours later, I attend a later meeting. There's about 20 people. The 1008. Uh, neither here nor there, 1008 uh, AA meeting. I don't went to that meeting a lot. And I would say, you know, I'm not a genius. I'm not that intelligent. But it took me about three meetings of my own, my meetings, to realize that you people were all a bunch of holy rollers. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is, you people are all about God and shit. And let me just explain. I grew up in an Irish Catholic family, went to Catholic school, uh, rejected it. Started asking too many questions that there weren't any real answers to, nothing legalistic. And I believe that religion was for just a bunch of weak-minded people that couldn't stand on their own. And that's what I brought to my first few meetings. And you people were saying, God this and God that, and let go and let God. And I don't believe in God. And I don't think you should either. And I want to know how you people really do this. This AA thing. So after a while, people stop giving you hugs and inviting you out to coffee when all you want to do is argue over God. The existence of God and how God's presence can help me to overcome the mental obsession and so forth. And so I've got a book someone handed me for free. Uh, I've got a temporary sponsor guy I call infrequently and I can't put together a week. It's about six to seven days each time that I put together a few days and drink and a few days and drink. And that went on for the first couple of months where I could not, not drink after six, seven days. I'd leave a meeting and tell myself I'm going to, and I'm going to put my foot down and do it this time, get a six pack and go home and just drink that. And here's the main fact about that, that thought, that idea, that little goal, normal people never have to ever, ever, ever try that. They just don't. They can drink or not drink or cut themselves off or whatever. They don't go through that dilemma, which I did. So a little more time goes by, some further consequences happen, and I finally call this temporary sponsor back who says, hey, are you done? Are you ready to do it someone else's way? And here's the thing, for anyone that's new or not so new right now, this would be a horrible time to be new. And I, uh, I'm just, I'm stunned by some people that made it through a year, like uh, that one little gal last week uh, that's got a year at the meeting. Mm-hmm. Um If you're all out of plans and ideas, if you are done with thinking that you know how you are going to keep you sober and you're ready to do it someone else's way, you may have a chance. And that's what I was told. Stop thinking. Start calling me and telling me what the fuck you're thinking. And we'll sort that out, was what I was told by my sponsor. And start doing what the hell I tell you. Don't argue with me. Don't debate it. Don't get off the phone and decide you're not going to. Just do what I'm telling you to do. And these were all very, very simple rules. Go to a meeting every day. Call me every day. It's a great habit to get into. That way, on the day that I do need to talk, I'll just automatically pick up the phone. There's a problem. Call my sponsor. There's an important decision to be made. Call my sponsor. Read the book. I can read. (laughs) Didn't make a lot of sense. It's not a Stephen King novel. It wasn't something I couldn't put down. It's a text, but it's a text about me and you and the way I think and feel, the way my drinking affected me. It's all about that. So I start reading. I start my first step. And to fast forward, he wasn't the right sponsor. But eventually I did find the right sponsor. I went through a couple more guys and I finally got, I got a guy who sat me down one day and said, don't waste my fucking time. Here's what I need you to do. Are you ready? And up to this point, I had been to step 3.5 with a couple of other people. 
And it was like a dance step, 3.5 drink. <laughs> and I, I still wasn't, you know, in permanent recovery or whatever you want to call it. I didn't have both feet on the ground or in this. And I said to Patrick, yes. And he said, good. And he more or less went over that same set of rules. And I, at, this, at this point, I'm finally ready. And I did. I did the work. And I'll tell you, believing in God and going to meetings and hearing the message and reading the book are great stuff. The steps, once I was finally sitting there and doing my fourth step and finally sitting at my sponsor's coffee table and getting it all out in my fifth, then and only then did I feel like I finally was in this. And it pointed out a lot. You know, my resentment list. I never really had it down in my own handwriting in black and white what they did as well as what my part was, that fourth column. That all-important fourth column. Where, where were you at fault, Rob? What did you bring? What did you do? What were my expectations? Why did I keep arriving at this same predicament with these people uh, over and over and over? And I, I started to see a pattern and the results of the pattern. And where I, I uh, had bigger resentments, some of them were maybe off the pattern, but they still showed me where I was, where I was at fault. Even with my parents, who I, I had no idea in the beginning how to, you know, the beginning of that step, how to, I didn't have a part in the way my parents fucked me up. Well, yeah, I did. I did have some part whether it be little or, or bigger or whatever, uh, it was shown to me and it made sense. And along with that, there was my sex list real easy. What I did, how I behaved and what I should have done instead. I was dishonest. All I cared about was me. And I was a user instead of a giver, uh, a user of people, a taker of things. That's what I did mostly. And my fear list, didn't even know how to begin that. And then it was like, okay, are you afraid of this? Are you afraid of that? I was like, oh shit. Okay, here we go. I had, I don't know, a good 15, 18 things <laughs> that were easy enough to write out. And then came the other list. There was a, there was a quality list too, which I had my girlfriend at the time help me with. Uh, I think she said, uh, I had pretty eyes and a nice butt. <laughs> <laughs> I had a few other things of my own, but I uh, I had a I had a hard time with the quality list. But the, the, the list that was the hardest, the most, the hardest thing for me to write was what we call uh, my grave list. The things I would rather take to my grave than ever discuss with anybody. And we all have our sheep story, each of us, at least one. Hmm. Things that either happened to us or that we had done that we're ashamed of with or without a drink, all important. And <laughs> so I finally shared all of that stuff, all seven or eight things with one person. And I remember I was so ashamed. I just had one key word for each of them. So no one would be able to decipher what it were if they ever found my, my fourth step. And here's the amazing thing about that. I'm sitting across the table from this man who was able to either match or beat anything I had said. He was able to say those two big, important words. Me too. I did that. I know how that felt. That also happened to me. I've been there. And it's very healing to get it out and also have someone that, that isn't judging, isn't looking down their nose. He's not a professional. I'm not on the couch, on the clock. It's a, it's another alcoholic sharing with me. And over the years, I've heard everything. I, I, uh, as I was saying earlier about my drinking, I'm somewhere in the middle of the road. I have heard everything from rape and murder and all sorts of other, not just, Wow, bad things mm. that other alcoholics have carried around. And where I can relate, I can relate. Where I can't, it's like, hey, 
we need to find you some help. Or I know this person over here. Maybe you could talk to him about some of this. Uh, also. And great shit to drink over. And suddenly I walked out of that, that meeting. It was actually two parts. It took us two evenings. And felt the results of that list being said said out loud. And it was, uh, it was freeing. I, I felt uh, more presence of God. Because trust me, you know. We all know if we've been through it. It takes something more than just myself to get it even written, to get it said. Yeah, I needed a higher power in my life. Back to the God thing. You know, I've had, in my time in recovery, plenty of incidents. And, and on accident or on per- whenever, I have seen God's presence. We all have. Or we wouldn't be here. Mm. But I can remember one morning getting up, and it was just this simple I'd been praying for a little while, hadn't been through the steps yet. Got up off my knees one day, you know, did my third step prayer and said, you know, a few other quick things and realized for the first time ever that it had been three or four whole days since the last time the disease was really on. It would happen at any hour, but especially around quitting time. At the end of the day at work, I'd start thinking about how much cash do I have in my wallet? Where can I get some? And then re-realize one more time, I'm so, I'm sober. I was living in a halfway house part of that time where you're not allowed to drink. Halfway houses are a little different in Arizona than they are out here. <laughs> and uh, I would have to pray or call my sponsor or get my ass to a meeting. And it has been three or four days since that feeling that, you know, it being on me like a cheap suit was over. Mm. And it, it hasn't been gone for good. I accumulated at one time nine years. And I say that because at some point in the eighth year, I went from, I'm going to three, four, five meetings a week. I've got a service commitment. I'm part of a home group. I'm sponsoring guys. I've got a sponsor I'm in contact with constantly to, I got a new job. I'm working nights. I'm making good money. I meet a normal girl. I'm finding less and less time to go to meetings. And in the end, what had ended up happening is I, by the time I had nine years, it took me nine days to get to a meeting and finally get a medallion. I fired my sponsor. I'm going infrequently, maybe once every week or 10 days to a meeting. And the money's still good. She's still around. And I need AA less and less. And one night I find some dope, some weed, and it just sounded great. Sounded like a good idea. At some point in the evening, it's like, you know, I'm tired of all this uptight AA bullshit. I'm going to go get stoned and enjoy. I'm going to take the dogs for a walk and throw in a movie and relax. And fortunately for me, it was a horrible experience. I was very, very uncomfortable. I hadn't been stoned in 10 years and, <laughs> or nearly. And I would say that uh, I spent the next four hours just trying to keep both feet on the ground. Following morning, I'm scared. I'm on my knees. God help me. I'm going to lose these dogs. Everything else I might as well throw into a pile and set on fire because I'm going to lose it too. My car, my apartment, everything in it. And, you know, I've seen other people throw away marriage, throw away their children, throw away everything for another hit. After they go back out, they just can't stop. And I would, I would say God doesn't love me any more than those people. And I am no better than anybody. I don't have any more inner strength than the next person. But something that morning made me so scared, and I was in my next meeting that night. Wow. And within a week, I heard a woman in a meeting say something that was so healing. She had just lost 10 years. At some point in her story, just lost 10 years. And she's talking to her sponsor. She's got a week sober. And 
the woman that sponsored her said, how can you lament something you didn't give a shit about one week ago? And this woman's multiple years sober telling her story before me that night. I was like, holy shit. Walked up. We talked for a couple minutes. I got in touch with my ex-sponsor. We got, we got the ball rolling again. And it's led up to these last 18 years. And I'd love to say that everything's been wonderful. It's been such a thrill ride. It's been, <laughs> you know, sometimes you hear people tell their story and it's like, really? <laughs> yeah. There's been ups and downs. It's life. People come and go. People, well, especially for us in our little subculture, people die. I know so many people that are dead behind the disease. You stick around, you're going to go to funerals. But there's also a lot of great things. A lot of good people, a lot of camaraderie, and a lot of opportunity. Uh, a lot of what life would have been for me would have just been at the bottom of a bottle. I don't know how long I may, may, may have lived, but you wouldn't want to know me. Nobody would in the condition I was in, the way things were. What ended up happening is I got a, a second opportunity at life. And would I say that I've taken advantage of every bit of it? No. No, I could have done better. Could have done a lot worse. Um, there's a lot more to come. What I have had happen is uh, the opportunity to help other people. Uh, to expand a little more on God, it's, you know, that old expression, God is everything or God is nothing. There are days when I take on the world by myself. And sometimes I can do that for a couple of days. And then I start to see conflict. And I start to notice all these assholes. And one thing that was told to me early on was, Rob, when the world just seems like it's filled with assholes, go look in the mirror. It's probably you. Mm -hmm. And realize, where are you at with God today? How much, how much of your will in your life are you taking back? And it's, it's just so easy now uh, to do uh, like a mini fourth step. What am I powerless over? Where's God in this? And those, those four columns, boom, boom, boom. Who they were, what they did, how it affected me. What's my part here? And carry on from there. Do I own amends? And so on and so forth. What are, what are my uh, defects of character? You know, my shortcomings in this, one and the same. Uh, working with others, uh, it's a blessing. And sometimes it, it's like, God, I've heard this before. <laughs> or do I really have to hear this now? When do I do, when have I done enough? When have I given back enough? And I was told ages ago, Rob, whenever you think you've done enough giving back to this fellowship, that's when you've just put a price on what your life is worth. And you, you have, you have just, uh, set a stopwatch on how much time is left. I'm like, okay. So the commitment is for good. And I would say there are, there are days when I get to help somebody get to be of service when I had no idea how uh, enriching it was for me until I was done. Uh, walking away and realizing my problems are okay. We're all, all, all going to have problems. Uh, I've never been under the delusion in recovery that things are just going to be wonderful now. And I don't, I don't go around with that prophecy to any newcomer or anybody that it's just going to be, it's going to be great now that you're sober. Uh, in fact, to the newcomer, uh, you may be just getting clean. You may be around a little while, but if you don't work these steps, it's only a matter of time before you drink again. Uh, I don't know anybody that ever made it without them. And it's not that hard. I've heard this expression so many times. It sounds so done. If I can do this, so can you. Believe me. If this can happen for me. But we both know the difference. The odds on anybody making it to a year. Or making it to five after that first year. The table of odds for alcoholics like you and me, it's just the most fucked equation there is. Um, 
yeah, seeing people with multiple years that just decide someday that they, they've had enough of this or they don't have time for it any longer. And then we hear about them. If they're tethered to, an, to us enough from somebody else that they didn't make it or they're sitting behind bars or they lost you know, a, a loved one in a, in a car accident, who knows? There's all sorts of tragedy. Uh, and I, I've asked myself, asked God, what, what am I getting away with here? And how can I be so lucky? And, um, I think I'm done. Do you have any other questions for me? Sure. Tell us a bit about your first year. What were your struggles and how were you able to overcome those struggles in year one? Well, <laughs> here's something that I went through. This was like pre-God or getting to, trying to get God in my life. I remember telling my sponsor one night <laughs> that uh, I, would, I would sit in meetings and I said, listen, this is really getting to be tough. I sit in meetings some nights worried that other people can read my mind and they can tell my, my just sick, sick thoughts. He's like, oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) That's rather egocentric, Rob. Uh, But you think they can read your... And I said, yeah, like the whole collective mind of the room can can hear me, you know, cognitively, you know, thinking about her legs or how I'd like to murder somebody else. And um, he's like, okay, here's what I want you to do with that. Uh, Breathe in God through your nose and breathe out Rob and all his sick thoughts. Nice. Can you do that? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, do that a few times and ask God to help you be present to hear what is the message. Because you're not listening to the, you know, the person that's speaking or whatever the topic is right now, whatever's being read or said, you are in this sick state. So try that. I said, okay, mm-hmm. okay. Um, you know, I would say there were a number of of times in that first year that, uh, I didn't think I was going to make it. Of course Uh, that I felt like was me losing. Like, I'm not going to make it. I'm, I'm on my way out. And I would say that today I felt, uh, that way. And I was lucky that I didn't feel too confident, cocky, sure of myself. And we, we meet people like that. They, they think they've got this. And you'd, you'd like to see them be a little more tentative, a little more scared. And I, I think I spent a lot of time being scared that I'm, I'm just, I'm going to fail at this. I'm just not going to make it. There was a sign over the door at that one club it said one day at a time, and I used to look up at it and say, I just, I don't know how this is going to happen. I, I can't see myself making it through the next month. And somehow those months accumulated. Mm. Um, so not being too sure and being a little bit scared. It's like uh, if you've ever stood on the edge of a cliff, you damn well better be a little scared. Hmm? And <laughs> uh, having that kind of uh, good fear of the disease, I think it was always there. If that helps answer. Yeah. Um, I guess that leads to the final question, really, is what piece of advice would you give yourself if you could go back and talk to day one, Rob? Oh, boy. What would I tell Rob then? Uh, yeah. That other old adage of ours, don't take life so damn serious. Nice. And uh, try to live in the moment. You know, what I found to be true about good meditation today is not emptying my mind. Try that someday. Huh? <laughs> Empty your mind and think of nothing is impossible for a guy like me. It's a setup. 
mm-hmm. focusing on just uh, a good word or a phrase and just treating every distraction that goes through my mind like a car that's going by. It's just, it's just traffic. It's going by. Okay. And not taking that too seriously either. You know, that, that I, I can't stay focused on, on this, you know, meditative state. Uh, it's a little like life. I, you know, I, I sometimes realize just how tense I may be in the moment. It's like, you know, Rob, no one else gives a shit right now. Let go. Just try to enjoy this. Be here. And we, we can all look back at what happened an hour ago and say, you know, that was fun, except that I wasn't present for it. And that's what I'm trying to do is enjoy the moment in the moment. And that's what I would tell the old, the, uh, the young me then. <laughs> so, uh, you know, another holiday season and I'm, uh, I'm grateful to be alive. You know, I want to say one thing real quick. Uh, it was about three and a half years ago that I got a call that my little brother died. And, you know, here, here's two little rules we had all my life. Um, if you've got a problem with him in the neighborhood, you got a problem with me. And my little brother got me in a lot of trouble, saving his ass. Mm. And no one hits him but me. <laughs> and uh, I was never able to protect him from himself and his disease. Mm. To, to have on your death certificate cirrhotic liver is really horrible. He was probably septic the last 72 hours of his life. And he was just too smart and too cool and made too much money and just couldn't be reached. The last person in the world he was going to listen to was me. And I love my little brother and he's gone. And this is an insidious disease. I take it serious, and I try not to take myself serious. Thanks, Rob T., for sitting down and sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. And thank you, listeners, for checking us out. I hope you enjoyed today's session. I know Rob from a few meetings locally And I always enjoyed his shares, but I've never got to hear his story. So I'm super happy that I got to today. And Rob, thanks again. Um, Remember, listeners, you can check us out at Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and uh, send a prayer out for those suffering with COVID at this moment and uh, all the nurses and doctors. And for my mother who is battling it right now. Mom, I miss you. Uh, I know God is with you and I'm going to see you soon. So I love you. Thank you again, listeners, and we'll see you next time.